Hello and welcome to the Doc Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mike DeLuke, and it's my mission to help you lead a happier, healthier, and more prosperous life, both personally and professionally. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Doc Podcast. Today's episode will be part one of a two-part discussion I'll be having with the amazing Dr. Stacy Ochoa. This is actually a first on the Doc podcast, as Stacy also has a podcast called the ASAP Pathway Podcast, and she'll be airing this episode on her platform as well. This way, both of our audiences can benefit from the content. For those of you who don't know Stacy, Stacy started her journey in dental sleep medicine 16 years ago when her dad was found to be CPAP intolerant. She took on this journey as a fight to literally save her dad's life. She took all the courses she could, as well as obtained the diplomat status with the American Board of Dental Sleep Medicine, the ABDSM. Stacy was one of the first diplomats in the St. Louis area and has gained the respect of her local sleep physicians and ENTs by working collaboratively and communicating well with her medical colleagues in a much needed interdisciplinary approach. Today, she is one of the key pediatric airway speakers at the annual North American Dental Sleep Medicine Symposium. She continues to lecture across the country at local clubs and organizations, raising awareness of this treatable and preventable epidemic. She also mentors others on this journey and helps guide dentists on their paths to bring this much needed intervention into their dental practices. She juggles the roles of mom, dentist, business owner, and pediatric airway warrior, sometimes dropping a ball as we all do, but picking it right back up and juggling away because it's important. Today, in part one, we're going to provide an overview of when and how interceptive orthodontic treatment can be extremely advantageous and transformational. Review the importance of a thorough diagnosis and treatment planning process. Discuss the literature that supports the value of interceptive treatment and dispute some of the articles that oppose it, as well as dispel the notion that docs who perform this treatment are just expanding every kid in an attempt to cure obstructive sleep apnea. In part two, we'll provide more detailed and specific treatment options and suggestions for pediatric patients who suffer from sleep disordered breathing. Compare slow maxillary expansion to rapid maxillary expansion, discuss expansion of the mandibular arch, and talk about the possibility of using braces and wires instead of traditional methods to expand and develop the arches. We'll also discuss why we believe many orthos are so resistant to this approach to interceptive treatment. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Stacy to the podcast. Welcome, Stacy. Thanks for having me, Mike. It's an it's an honor to be on your podcast. So tell me a little bit more about, it's an amazing story about your passion for airway orthodontics. Tell me a little bit more about that if you could and how you've gotten to this point. You know, I really feel like my story is a lot of people's story. Mm-hmm. I think we all have, uh, we know someone in our family that isn't sleeping or breathing right. And it happened mm-hmm. to be my dad. And, um, you know, he wasn't tolerant of the, of the CPAP that he was on and the sleep physicians came to me mm. saying, why aren't you making a device for your dad? Your wow. dad can't tolerate a CPAP. We are out of options. You're a dentist. Maybe we punt to you. And I was like, well, I didn't learn this in dental school and I don't know <laughs> right. how to do this. Right. And, yeah. and I, I, you know, I think our, um, the trait of the average dentist is, you know, we're type A, we want to do it right, you know, analysis paralysis. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I just realized I had to help my dad. So um, I went and started taking a lot of classes and courses and this was for adult um, sleep and airway health. And Mm -hmm. I got my dad into a device and um, 
But then I started seeing all this in my kids, Mike, like, and Mm. it's like, I, as much as I admire and love my dad, I want my kids to grow up to be like my dad. Mm -hmm. I did not want them to grow up and have all the comorbidities my dad battled. Yep. And um, my dad did lose his uh, battle with sleep apnea on Valentine's night. Gosh, going on seven years ago, which I can't even believe, but that just ignited this passion for, you know what? We got to get to these kids. If somebody could have helped my dad and saw things when he was younger let's get really honest you don't just wake up with sleep apnea one day right you don't right. wake up at 40 you this is this started somewhere right the trajectory of health changed so right that that's my story i mean i um started with my dad i'm very grateful that i was able to help my dad as much as i could mm-hmm. and uh but yeah it ignited this whole journey of helping the kids Awesome. That's awesome. I appreciate you being open and sharing that. And uh, I think so many, so often our life experiences do contribute to um, the directions that we go. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. And I think that makes us even better healthcare providers because we have the life experience and it's not just a topic to us. It means something to us. Completely agree. I completely agree. For me personally, uh, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's personal for me in ways as well. Uh, I know you're mentioning the story with your, with your dad. Um, I had a personal issue with my airway, uh, not sleep apnea per se, but mouth breathing and obstruction of my nasal passageways and gone through years ago to sinus surgeries and mine was all allergy based. And, um, I had multiple head CTs and, and just trying to figure out what was going on multiple rounds of antibiotic and steroid and things to try to decrease the inflammation. And, really helped me understand that area, uh, the, the the nasal passageways and airway patency more than I ever really would ever than we we learned. We learned the anatomy, obviously, in our, our formal training, but not really the practicality of what that means in your average patient. So I started looking into things a little differently and had this concept that when these kids came in with narrow arches and constricted arches, they often presented to me because the, the the chief complaint or the referral from their primary care provider was was crowding. But I was looking at these models and, and I just started to notice that yeah, their tongue didn't have a lot of room. These kids are growing vertically, their mouth breathers, their mouths are open. I just started noticing this. And then I started thinking about my own issues and challenges with airway. And it really evolved from there. And it just became mm-hmm. this passion where I started, as I started seeing it in kids and learning how to ask the right questions to parents, which we're going to talk about all that and learning how to perform certain treatments, which we're going to talk about as well. And then with the advent of low dose cone beam CBCT imaging, uh, which I got in my office in 2014, I started really getting a view of, of these kids airways and just working with my local ENTs and allergists to be able to create an amazing diagnosis and plan for these young kids that was truly changing their lives and was way more than just straightening teeth. Uh, So in that every case I treated and every time I had a parent tell me I changed the life of their child, um, it fueled that fire in me more and more and more and that passion. And so as I got later in my career, I decided I'd always wanted to teach more. I'd been, as you alluded to, I'd been teaching all along, but I really wanted to spend more time teaching. So I decided that the time was right, that I would spend the second half of the, my career as I spent the first half building, growing and running my own practice. I was going to spend the second half uh, teaching others. And I think that offers me a really unique 
opportunity because I've been there in the trenches. I've been seeing many, many patients in a day and uh, understand the stresses that come with running a practice. But I have also done this live on patients for many, many years. Um going back to the early 2000s. So I can speak to it. Another interesting thing is, you know, and when I was trained, we did a lot of extraction of teeth. We didn't get to treat mm. kids real young, which we'll talk more about. Um, and I think that's important to understand kind of the general concept of interceptive treatment and what we're talking about here. It's more than just treating airway. It's more than, it's not like you're diagnosing airway. And I want you to touch on that in a moment yes. as well, but it's understanding and diagnosing your patient. It's understanding the etiology of what you're seeing. And so, so often, as I was trained in my training, you see, and, and it becomes a reactive approach. You know, when you're talking about your dad, you said it so well when you said, by the time that they're apneic and having all these associated comorbidities, it's you, you've missed the window to really be able to proactively do it. And medicine is really starting to get that. It's got a long way to go. But Agreed. healthcare needs to become well care. It needs to become proactive care. And they're starting to realize like, okay, by the time you have a heart attack, it's a little late, right? We, we should have caught that heart disease 20 years earlier. Um, by the time you have late onset diabetes, it's probably a little late, right? You know, we can manage it, but we should have, can, can you treat it? Can you manage it? Of course. Well, it, it, it's somewhat analogous to what we're talking about in pediatric airway and interceptive treatment. Could you wait? Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the young child is probably not going to die from it at, at that age, right? They're in When they're young and a teenager. So if you wait and don't do it when they're six or seven or earlier or whatever you're going to be doing and do it at 12 or 13, it, you know, what's the mortality rate in there? I, I don't know those numbers, but it's easy to just say, well, we can do it later. But what damage has been done in the interim? Amen to that. And that's what I want to go over that too today is, Please. is diving into why not wait? And and within ASAP Pathway, I mean, our our tagline is because kids can't wait. Right. ASAP Pathway, because kids can't wait. Right. And I think this is where we need to dive into what are we treating here mm -hmm. and etiology. Um, obstructive sleep apnea is in-stage disease. Right. So uh, right. A, a child that has OSA, I mean, that's pretty darn sick. Yep. Um, but we can get to them before that too, you know, with uh, mouth breathing issues, allergies, uh, snoring. I mean, there's so much research out there supporting that just snoring only leads to neurocognitive deficits. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned, Mike, okay, well, let's just wait till they're 12, 14, all the lymphoid tissues tend to shrink back. Right. Yep. Involution. Okay. Yep. So that's that the argument, mm -hmm. right? Yep. Mm -hmm. So the adenoid shrink and the tonsils yep. shrink. Yeah, all um, and okay, but the brain is pretty much done developing all the neurons it's going to have by six. Mm -hmm. So during uh, Dr. Stephen Sheldon, he is one of the most amazing pediatric sleep physicians out of Lurie Children's Hospital in Chicago, mm -hmm. has a beautiful presentation on the first 1,000 days of life. And it's just talking about the neural connections and everything that's happening. And he will tell you repeatedly, if you do not fix this by six, it's broken and it's broken for good. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're not talking an AHI diagnosis. Right. 
I am talking neurocognitive deficits. This is what we have to help these kids with. This is where oppositional disorder, ADD, ADHD, those things get hardwired in. And if you wait, it's hardwired for good. And we've got studies by Karen Bonick, um, who studied thousands of children that snored and they had had nothing to do with a sleep study. This was snoring mm-hmm. and neurocognitive deficits and behavior issues. It is so compelling in this study with Karen Bonick that the American Academy of Pediatrics decided to put in that every child should be asked if they snore mm. in part of their uh, discussions with their patients now. Do you find that the pediatricians are doing it? Um, I think I'm seeing in St. Louis, I have some pediatricians that are definitely much more open to this. They do refer uh, to the sleep physicians. Okay. Um, I think there's still that paradigm that has to shift for them to consider, okay, I sent them to the sleep physician. They don't have an OSA diagnosis. Like, again, let's remember OSA is in stage disease. Yeah, talk about that a little more if you would, the the- because that's a big point that I hear all the time from yes. ortho colleagues and is, you know, you, you know, you're diagnosing these kids with sleep apnea. No, I'm not. Um, but talk about that, the difference in what the symptoms these kids present with. And I, I'll add some of my thoughts on it too. But what are your thoughts on the people who say, no, you're just, you know, you're going over your head. This is a medical issue. Uh, it's nothing that you should be dealing with in the dental arena until they have a formal sleep study done and diagnosis of obstructive sleep apnea. Okay. So if you look at the statistics, three to 5% of children have an official OSA diagnosis. Now that's, uh, could be potentially bigger because we have a lot of undiagnosed kiddos out there. Right. But again, that is in stage. That is a significant health condition and it's rare. Okay. It's mm-hmm. rare. Mm-hmm. And if you do have a child with that, there is plenty of literature supporting that you know, craniofacial development should be on the table for those yes. children. Especially and I'll in- some of that in a little bit. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. Mm-hmm. Because the non-obese child that has OSA is usually a situation of craniofacial development. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, but let's go back to, say you've got parents in the office, you're seeing a very sick child tossing, turning, bedwetting, um, sweating in their sleep, mm-hmm. uh, mouth breathing. This kid's not sleeping well. Mm-hmm. fragmented sleep. You send them to the sleep physician. The parents go, um, again, that has its own um, obstacles, right? Sometimes a high copay, yep. uh, getting parents to go and the have practicality the practicality of doing that. The in practicality. Busy life. Yeah, yes. Yeah. The practicality of fitting that in among mm-hmm. everything else. Right. Um, not easy. And the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, they understand this. Um, okay. There are going to be changes coming down the pipe on um, testing children. They do have home sleep testing on the radar. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, and okay. I think as the um, technology and improves, they're going to be able to do that kind of testing at home. But for now, the gold standard is the PSG. So mm-hmm. you have little Johnny um, in the chair. He's all over the place. He is, you know, fidgeting, ADHD, circles <laughs> yep. under the eyes. I mean, he is yep. classic sleep deprived. You, you send it. for a sleep study, comes back normal. Study comes back normal, which honestly in children is more times than not. Mm-hmm. But you know, this kid is not doing well. Right. 
regardless, Mike, this is where we, as what I believe, orthodontists, dentists, are becoming the primary care of the airway. Um, They see us more than they see their pediatricians. And we're the ones seeing the craniofacial changes. If you have CBCT imaging, we're seeing the adenoids. We're seeing it. We're seeing this. We're frontline. Yes. And it is our responsibility when those children walk in the door, when somebody's child is in your chair, they're not just that parent's responsibility. They are now our responsibility. And we know too much. We know too much to ignore it. And we need to do what orthodontists and dentists are trained to do. And you're going to go into the things that you see. I, I can't wait to hear more from you about like what are you going to see clinically that's going to say, I'm taking action. I don't care what the results are in a PSG. It is my obligation to make more room for this child's tongue, to get them to the ENT, to help them breathe through their nose and change the trajectory of their life. We know that mouth breathing changes growth and development. Completely. I'll review some of those studies as well. Harvold studies. I'll go into that um, and, uh, and and talk about that knowledge. And it's such a great point. Uh, so many great points, because I think <clears throat> the people who, for whatever reasons, have their own reasons where they oppose this, they kind of fall back on a couple of things. Well, there's no literature saying that there's this connection. And I'll, I'll address the 2019 uh, AO white paper uh, mm. in, in a moment. Uh, apparently they're actually coming out with a revision again, yes. they did a revision in 2019. Apparently there's a revision pending for the next year or so. So I'll be interested to see what, what comes of that, but I'll, I'll talk more about that in a moment. But as you said, we know there's this problem, right? The American Academy of Otolaryngology had a neck surgery. You, you quoted the numbers for OSA. They kind of take the term sleep disordered breathing, right? And they said that there's a percentage of kids who snore regularly. They estimate around, say, 10%, right? So that ranges from the obstructive apneas you were talking to, right, which is a 3-5% or so, say, but as you said, probably more. These are just the ones that are presenting or getting diagnosed to frequent loud snoring, right? So that sleep disorder breathing. So I've really been big that does it really matter if they have a diagnosis of obstructive sleep apnea, again, we're talking about young kids, like right. young adults, and it, it is it is different, right? We can't equate the the two. There are similarities, there are parallels, but we're talking about young, growing kids. And as you said and alluded to, we are on the front lines of this. The pediatricians aren't taking radiographs on these kids younger. They're not doing the type of workup and diagnostics we are of their dentition. And the studies bear out that so many breathing issues manifest as malocclusion. And you can see so much from the teeth, the tongue space. And then when you're taking cone beams and you can look at the pharyngeal airway, the nasal passageways, you get an idea if they have nasal passageway obstruction, if they have lymphoid tissue obstruction, both, none, and narrow arches, insufficient space for the tongue, restriction of the oral pharyngeal region as that tongue falls back, those arches narrow. We know as the face grows, if they're opening their mouth often, they're stretching those buccinators, Mm -hmm. they're constricting the width of the growth of the face, making them grow more vertically. Anterior open bites can be more prominent. Tongue thrusts can develop more easily. You have all these other things that are sequelae of that uh, original etiology being the way they're breathing. So when you say, when someone, not you, when someone says you need to get polysomnography to confirm that this child has obstructive apnea before the orthodontist can really, or general pediatric dentist, if this is something they're doing, can play any role in this to me, never 
made sense. I have every right with my training and expertise to diagnose the symptoms of a patient that's not yes. growing properly. Every right. It's what Absolutely. I do all the time. And it, it's interesting too, because if you look at the ENT guidelines for when to remove tonsils and adenoids, I mean, it used to be, oh, you know, infection and antibiotic need throughout yep. the year. It's dental malocclusion trumps those. The ENTs know more about this. They know the more about the really Exactly. They know. And I really get a lot of referrals from the ENT. I did they, too. I got a significant number. They get they it. Get they get it. Were, yep. And I, I wanted to circle back. So this whole OSA thing, and again, obstructive sleep apnea is a diagnosis based off of an al algorithm mm -hmm. of AHI, which is being challenged right now. I don't see it going away anytime soon, mm -hmm. but, Agreed. but we know that that is the standard right now of how do we know someone has this condition you know, we have to look at, okay, what's the AHI? Is it above this? Are they desaturating 3%, 4%? So I get it. It's it's kind of what we have to deal with right now. But there is a problem with the algorithm. And one of the problems is, are we even looking at the right signaling in the pediatric population? Hmm. So we're utilizing an algorithm that tends to work for obese men. It doesn't really work well for people with dark skin because of the pulse oximetry. It doesn't really work well for thin women because women don't desaturate mm -hmm. very much. Interesting. We and have- Correct me if I'm wrong, they develop these standards off of the adult population, right? Yes, There's yes. no sets, they extrapolated them to apply to pediatrics if I'm not mistaken. Yes, so then they decided, okay, so for pediatrics, the AHI, they just drop everything. So um, the AHI, if it's over one, that child has mild OSA. So one to five, then five to 10. And mm -hmm. so they just, I mean, again, everyone's doing the best they can right now. This yep. is the wild, wild West. It really is. Yep. Sleep medicine is a new science and pediatric sleep medicine is, is a hot topic and an even newer science. But like you said, Mike, we do not need a diagnosis of OSA to do what we need to do as dentists and orthodontists. Hmm. Um, I agree. So we need to go in and set the stage for proper tongue posture, swallowing, function, and Arch breathing. development. Exactly. Arch development. Mm -hmm. to, uh, eruption of the teeth. And yes. that's something where in my profession, I face a lot of criticism from people saying, oh, you know, I'll get into some of the, the studies of people who oppose early and interceptive treatment period philosophically right that that's something that's that's deeply ingrained in the profession but they talk about it as in just the teeth and there's this mm. concept of you can just wait and you don't need to do it um actually we can talk about some of them now so gianelli who's a one of the main figures he's since passed but he's a main figure in our profession very respected he was in boston and guy had more profound knowledge of the literature. I mean, he forgets more literature than I would remember. So I'm not questioning his knowledge, his his expertise. What I'm saying is, it was, he had a very strong dogma, anti-interceptive treatment. He published on it numerous times. One of his big studies in 95, he was talking about the fact, it, it all came down to the teeth. Okay, mm -hmm. so when orthodontists are kind of anti-early treatment, a lot of it be, originates from an argument of, 
can you make room for these teeth and get a comparable orthodontic result and aesthetic aesthetically and functionally if you don't do interceptive treatment and wait, okay? There's no mention of airway. There's no mention of the growth of the craniofacial complex in these studies. They're literally talking about management of e-space. And if you start in the late mixed dentition, Virginelli, can you preserve that e-space and still fit the teeth in without having to then go extract teeth if you use, say, a lower holding arch and headgear in the late mixed dentition. And instead of this interceptive phase when they're young and address and redirect the growth and development, and then it may be a second phase as needed when they're adolescents to get the teeth all aligned and get an ideal occlusion. You could just create one longer phase that starts when they're in their mid to late mixed dentition with some space maintenance and, and sort of interceptive modalities, and then transition them into brackets and wires. Number one, it's horribly inefficient, right? You're, you're, you're okay, great. So now we keep this kid in braces for three, four years. You've got, whether it's not full braces, you're still treating them orthodontically for three to four years at that point, space maintenance and so forth. Number two, which has its own consequences, negative consequences. Number two, it's about more than the teeth. That's yes. the whole point is I can argue with you over whether the e-space is sufficient in this patient or we can yes. pick up the measurement of, okay, that gives me two and a half millimeters aside on the lower and I've got four millimeters <laughs> of crowding. That's not the point. The point is, is this child growing incorrectly and why is there crowding? If Thank they're you. crowding because they have big teeth and they've got big broad arches and big teeth, then we can have that discussion. Like, does it really it's rarely macrodontia. It's, it's not macrodontia. <laughs> I had a study that was published in um, Orthotown in, in, Ju in June, excuse me. And we have a follow-up study. I have part two is coming out in November. And in part one in June, I talked about exactly that. The statistics and the data that talk about how often this is macrodontia versus how often this is narrow, constricted, small arches, right? It, there are essentially, there's no good literature out there to substantiate that the, the majority or the preponderance of the time, it's due to large teeth. It doesn't exist. It's, it's almost always due to narrow arches. So why are they crowded? And why aren't we talking about that? And then just to finish on that, it, um, Orthan Tunke, who's been well-known in our profession out of the Philadelphia area, he's been, I believe, a past president of the AAO. He went so far in an article to basically call out orthodontists and say that anybody who does it, it's quackery, that they're a quack mm -hmm. if you do interceptive treatment. I mean, stop and think about that for a second. Like, okay, you can have your own opinions on this, right? I mean, you know, and he was 93, his came out. You can have your own opinions on this. But when you're publishing in the American Journal of Orthodontics and Dentofacial Orthopedics that it was called unorthodox approaches to healthcare, unorthodox approaches to healthcare. So that was what he labeled interceptive orthodontic treatment as That's... an unorthodox approach to healthcare. And he is a highly intelligent, very, very well-published and well thought of orthodontist who is a thought leader in our profession. So when, and he used the word quote unquote quacks, he said that orthodontists That's who believe so... in the orthodontists who believe in the value of early treatment mm -hmm. are quacks. So when you see something that dogmatic, number one, my attitude is if something is ever that dogmatic in any capacity, run. Right? Like, Amen like, to that. Like you and I are not saying, and as we've talked before, neither of us have, has ever said, nor would I ever say that every patient should have younger treatment, early interceptive treatment, and that going in and treating these kids young fixes every airway problem. That is not at all no. what we are saying. What we are saying is 
in the orthodontic literature, stop looking at it as can you use the e-space to fit the teeth and avoid extraction if that's going to be your objective? And why the heck are they crowded in the first place? And let's get more towards that paradigm shift towards an early evaluation and proactive approach where medicine is starting to see, right? Why do we have these sleep monitors and why are we wearing watches and things that monitor and track our heart rate and our blood sugar? Because medicine is waking up to the fact that by the time you have those issues, you are sick. And if we can get you to modify things before you're sick, we can avoid end-stage disease. We have to have the same mentality in orthodontics and in dentistry and look at it and say, I mean, dentistry's gotten it, right? Fluoride, prevent sealants, right? That all is preventative. I mean, what, we're going to wait till they have a cavity because, well, maybe, you know, you can do a pretty good job if you get it before the cavity is too severe. You can probably still fill it and, and have a good result long-term for that tooth. Okay, fine. Maybe you could. But does that mean you don't seal that tooth when they're younger? What's the difference in that and going in proactively for interceptive treatment? It's so, I, I want to circle back to what you said about it's the etiology. So, and I, I think it's how you and I first met just on social media, because we have common, um, we have a common mission and um, man, then we just literally, I think we just talked for hours about all of this stuff. It's like, oh my gosh, these conversations have to happen because- Some of it was therapeutic for, for it me. It was least. so therapeutic. <laughs> I mean, it was a nice vent session. And yes. and it's so nice because when you find someone else that gets it and sees it and is in the trenches, but back to the etiology um, with you know the dispute of early, um, early treatment and intervening yeah. early, again- we're looking at apples and oranges. If you're looking at the teeth only as mm -hmm. your why, mm -hmm. we're going to come to different conclusions. So what is your diagnosis? The teeth aren't the problem most of the time. Like you said, it is not macrodontia. Nope. And like I would even venture to say this whole bimax protrusion thing is even being... Um, some of the most attractive people in the world have bimax. What we would call bimax protrusion. Let's like let's get. I let's... treated planned a case with a resident <laughs> yesterday, and the patient just had fuller lips, right? And I said, I said to him, I said, because you know they came up, they 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 draw the rickets e plane, and they're looking at their lip protrusion as as what we had to do, what I did in in residency, and you go through these steps, and by by numbers, that mm -hmm. patient is protrusive, and I said. To the resident, I said, look, people pay a lot. This this particular patient is an adolescent. I said, people pay a lot of money to look when this they're way. adults to have lips that full. I'm like, <laughs> there's a, you look at this, the, the cosmetic industry. I mean, there is a lot of money going in to, to lips right now, to getting lips fuller. I'm like, why would we ever want to do something to this child to take their lip support away when we know yes. that as the face ages, the lips go back anyway and get thinner and and um, retrude and the nose and the chin get more prominent. So again, I didn't mean to interrupt you with that, but it's such a great point to talk about the, some of the, again, dogmas and theories. The dogmas. Been, yeah. Well, let's get real. Some of the, um, Seth analysis were based off of a one orthodontist, nine-year-old white boy's face. I, like, I literally, my lecture to the residents yesterday was on Ceph's and that, and I took them through the history of the evolution of cephalometrics yeah, and how and it that evolved. Is... And, and if you really understand the, uh, the evolution of cephalometrics, um, it's, it's, I have a, one of my courses on my, on the doc, um, website on the ortho coach website goes into the diagnosis and taking it to these phase one patients and talking about cephalometrics and really how they came to be. And that when you really stop and think about the fact that people in my profession are still defending that over 
3D imaging. Oh um, my gosh. It's, it's interesting. It is interesting. And people just hold on for dear life. And I think to, I think some of it's out of fear. It's fear of change. Yes. yes. It's they're afraid. And you and I have said this, you know, we have both said, if someone starts saying cure, I always say run, you know, right. No, we, right. we are, no one is saying cure. And if they nope. are red flags, but I want to go back saying ev- or if they're saying everyone, Everyone, always, always, yeah, all these absolutes. Yeah. Like I treat children. I don't treat statistics. I I treat the child sitting in my chair and how they present. And um, it is my responsibility and I know too much and there's too much literature supporting. So back to, you know, the dispute against early intervention. Can I ask Um, you a question about that? Yeah. Yeah. So the, the point you just made about the fear they have of doing it. And I don't, I, I agree with you. There's fear. And and I'll go into in a little bit some of my theories on why how orthodontists get down this path. But what do you think about the fact that because practices have, are very busy and because especially in orthodontics, and I'm an orthodontist, I'm not you know indicting my colleagues, but uh, I, I talk to the residents about this all the time. It is our responsibility to diagnose each patient and not rush through that process to get them into treatment. And I feel like because the younger kids take a little more time, take a little more energy, you have to look at them a little differently. They, that, that visit's going to be a little longer. They don't fit within our box in orthodontics mm-hmm. of the consult of the 12-year-old who needs braces, right? And I feel like it's a it's an inconvenience to the practice to take the time because you can't just look at the images in the back room real quick, walk in, hi, I'm Dr. So-and-so, nice to meet you. Great, Johnny's going to be ready for braces. My t- treatment coordinator is going to go through getting them set up and walk out, which sadly is what's happening in a lot of orthodontic offices very often. Yes. As opposed to taking that five or 10 minutes that you owe the patient and you owe the profession to diagnose and do a full clinical examination. And it might it take 15 minutes with, with a younger kiddo. It might. But just because you don't want to do that, and I'm not even saying every orthodontist has to do that. If you don't want to do that and you want to focus right. on just, just treat adults, just treat adults. Like, yeah. like, like do it, do it. What you know, it's, who am I to say how you should practice? But don't mock and and cast stones at those who are seeing something and doing something that you don't want to do or don't know how to do. Just admit, that's not my thing. Like I focus on this. If you want to do that, okay, great. So right. why, what, do you think that there's anything to that? I do. I think, gosh, this is so loaded. We could have a 10 part podcast. I think <laughs> I swear we might have to extend weekly. it past we'll do a weekly. two <laughs> podcasts because, okay. My brain is going 100 miles an hour with things I want to say on that topic because I feel, not just I feel, but I think here's the reality of it. It is the model of the typical orthodontic practice. I think there's a discomfort in treating or seeing a four, five, six-year-old because I don't think there is a behavior management aspect in the orthodontic residencies like our pediatric colleagues, right? So our pediatric colleagues have behavior management as part of, you know, part of their residency. Yeah. They're very comfortable treating a small yes. child because it's yes. part I'm so of the residency. Yes. So why not incorporate pediatric behavior management within dental schools and orthodontic residencies? And I say this to all my orthodontists, my orthodontists in town that I have been taking to lunch for a decade, begging them to see children younger, because here's the reality. As a primary care dentist, I am seeing a mother pregnant 
bringing her other kids in to see me. I'm seeing, I'm holding that baby. I'm seeing, I'm, I'm doing dietary counseling with this child and the mother while their baby teeth are forming. I'm watching this child grow in my practice. Mm-hmm. I can't not do something. Mm-hmm. We, the primary care dentist has to do something because we are seeing these children. So we want to refer to our orthodontist. Mm-hmm. It's just, we get the pushback because I think they're just not comfortable. And like you said, okay, if you don't want to see them, that's okay. But don't ostracize another healthcare professional that is Thank able you. to and willing to see them. Ostracize and, and mock. It's and mock. mockery at this point. And yes. Yeah. And it's and it's um ad hominem attacks. Yeah. It is inflammatory. Yeah. It is unprofessional. It is embarrassing. And, and it exposes their own insecurities, really. It really does at the yeah. end of the day. Secure people don't mock other people like they that. They really don't. And yeah. honestly, the ones with the arrows in their back right now, they they see it. We yeah. all see it. Yeah. And hopefully- I've got plenty in mind. Uh, yes. I'm used to it by now. I hope if there's anybody listening right now, look, there's a lot of shares at the table for this conversation to happen respectfully. Yeah. Um. We, I've got medical doctors, Mike, calling me, you know, what do I do with these kids? I, I, I have I sleep physicians. Yes. So I'm not going to look at my medical colleagues and say, okay, you've taken out the adenoids. You've taken out the tonsils. Thank They're you. on allergy medication. Sorry. Yep. There's some orthodontists out there that really don't feel comfortable right. with. I mean, right. not right. happening. It's no. not happening. And this is why you see so many general dentists doing this is because- we see the children, we see them struggling. The medical doctors are coming to us with wonderful literature yep. and saying, your turn, yeah. doc, your yeah. turn. And I'm not going to not do the proper thing because you know somebody thinks I shouldn't. I, I mean, sorry, it's just not going to happen. And and the and rationale- for for Yeah, I mean- yeah, And the rationale is, is just not- I, I don't even understand it. It's apples and oranges, Mike. So back to why, what is the, what is the literature saying to support early intervention? There's Can plenty out there. Can I stop you for one second before you, you go Yes, that, yes. That, so y- I will take it a step further. What you said, you are 110% correct that there is a huge lack of education in most dental schools um, and for sure in the majority of orthodontic residencies on management of pediatric patients or patient management in general. Yeah, I yeah. was very blessed to have a guy, Fred Ferguson, any of you, shout out to to Dr. Ferguson, any of you Stony Brook grad, I think he's still there. I think he is running the pediatric pro. I mean, he was just, I mean, he was amazing. I credit a lot of my ability to treat younger kids to, to him. Um, he would stop the whole clinic. So we'd be in, in clinic and and you would have all of a sudden you'd be, and we were treating uh, kids with developmental disabilities. And it was really, I mean, it really pushed your limits. And he was not big on sedation. He was like, you figure this out, papoose board, you figure out how to do this. And hmm. uh, you're a dental, third year dental student. You're like, what in the world am I doing? And he would literally, when something was going on, you'd all of a sudden you'd be working with your patient in the middle of it. He'd be like, stop, stop. Everybody stop. And you're you're like, oh, you just hoped it wasn't you that was getting this. He would call, come on, everybody come down. He would call everybody in the class down to center around one person's bay. And he would teach them what, all right, it's so-and-so, tell me what's wrong here. Now you've just left the kid, you know, you could see them still, but you know, yeah, that's like, lit up a boost. And he was just, he, 
he was so amazing and he was about tell show do and he was about mm. not being scared of these yes. you know, how to how to get he would teach us get down on their level and you know he'd take a kid who was out of control i would say we would say he was like the patient whisperer he would take a kid he would take a kid who was flipping out and all of a sudden he would get in front of them he would do all the tricks that you know, go beyond what we're talking about in this podcast but and he, and all of a sudden this kid within like 30 seconds is like sitting there <clears throat> listening to everything he does so and with a bite block in and and we're like yeah what in the like world? here let me help you work and on me just, now yes. yes and so i was blessed to have that training and i get a lot weren't if they didn't go through that so i was willing to treat younger kids when i started when i went to my residency just so people out there know this most residencies i've taught in multiple of them i've trained many residents over the years, most residencies are not treating young kids. And by young, I don't mean three or four. I mean, six, seven, eight, nine. Yeah. That's shocking to me, Mike. Not treating them. So what happens is they might see them, they might screen them, but a lot of it has to do with the, the system, insurance mm. system. A lot of residencies have a lot of high percentage of state funded patients. And so if they're on state funding and, and government assistance for their health care, they use a Saltzman index, which is a kind of historical index that we use. And, and actually now even private pay plans are, are, are using some of this to evaluate the necessity, medical necessity. Okay. So some of that came out in the Obamacare plan, medical necessity for ortho, the orthodontist will know what I mean. All of a sudden you had insurance companies telling you you had to fill out a Saltzman mm -hmm. index for a private pay patient. We're like, wait, I thought this was just for, for uh, Medicaid. But in the residencies, you have a high percentage of patients who are on a government insurance program and they require medical necessity to be proven. Well, you can get medical necessity for say a, a severe craniofacial issue for a young child, for a posterior crossbite that affects, I think like all the teeth basically on one side. You can't get it for just crowding mm. because they only score the permanent teeth. So if you have that six, seven-year-old whose central incisors have erupted, and their laterals are like completely blocked out, right? Narrow V-shaped arch, mm. anterior posterior V-shaped. They might have a high vaulted palate too. <clears throat> Vertical discrepancy. You know they're going to be severely crowded. And that kid, six, seven-year-old is in your, in your chair. Maybe they have a sleep issue. Maybe they have a breathing issue. You're probably not even talking about that. You can't do anything to that child because the insurance won't cover it. It's what, so crazy. What they will cover is when that child has severe crowding in three, four, five years, they will cover the extractions. They will cover the full ortho. So the system is set up so that orthodontists aren't getting trained on the patient management or treatment or even diagnostics of young kids, which is why you take academicians like Gianelli and these people who are so anti-phase one and you see why they're very anti-phase one, because they don't have even access to it. Remember, their research, their studies, their patient population is in a residence. Yes. It's in an ivory yes. tower. They're not in private practice. No, they're, they're not, not in the real world. They're not they're seeing not. what you and I are seeing. They're but yet they're throwing out- of that mom. No. They're not. They're not. They're, they're throwing out, though, what they want to be the standard when they're not even seeing the demographic. That everyone else is. It's, it's ignorance. It really is. But it it's, really it, is. It's, it's, I, it's they're I feel protecting like, themselves. And, and I feel I think, like agreed. Uh, they're protecting themselves. And I feel like they're digging their heels in because look, as humans, we all want to be right. So we all, there's this natural tendency to support what you're currently doing to justify why you're doing what you're yes. doing. But if we could all just sit around a table 
and say, you know what? I'm just going to be really honest. Even if this all shakes out in five years, that we are helping these kids. And wow, the neuro- and, and look, the literature is there for neurocognitive deficits. Um, Ghazal had a study, um, really interesting study on 13-year-olds that do not snore, right? They're past that lymphoid uh, tissue yep. uh, shrinkage. They're no longer snoring. But the children that snored between four and six mm-hmm. that no longer snore at 13 mm-hmm. were all in the bottom third of their class academically. No so the kidding. the wow. neurocognitive deficit, this is Dr. David Gazal's paper. Um, gosh, the year it came out, I can't remember. He just was at Mizzou uh, with pediatric sleep medicine. He's one of the best in the world. He's the one actually just posted a paper on biomarker testing. Um, they're looking at, okay, let's look beyond the AHI. We should be testing maybe more biomarkers in these children. Mm, yes. So uh, we're looking at gut health. We're looking at environmental load. We're looking at epigenetics. We're looking at uh, diet. We're looking at so much with these kids, Mike. And if you're thinking, you know, you have to have a sleep study to do what we should be doing, you can go back to papers that are 100 years old that are looking at the primary dentition. These are orthodontists that pushed out papers in 1918 saying we have to look at the why behind a lack of spacing or God forbid crowding in baby teeth. You have to look at the etiology of that. Even though it's a minor, it looks like a minor discrepancy, no spacing between baby teeth and spacing between baby teeth. That's a malocclusion, Mike. And you wouldn't look at a child at four and five who needs glasses who needs a hearing aid for quality of life and say, you know what? Why would I make you one now? You're just going to need new glasses every two years anyway. Exactly. Let's wait till you're 12 or 13 and your head's done growing. Then I'm going to get you glasses. That's such a great analogy. What kind of life are they going to have? That's such a good analogy. You're going to ask me to watch a child suffer. I mean, this is... And, and, and some people it. might say, oh, that's a little extreme, Stacey. You know, vi- you need to see. Well, you need to sleep too. You need like, to breathe. So and you, need you need to breathe to, when you sleep. And you so need it's to like, sleep. <laughs> if you are not breathing and sleeping well, well, then I love that analogy to vision because you're 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 missing a huge part of your neurocognitive development as a result. I mean, as adults, we get a couple nights, you know, we have little kids. Oh, we're train wrecks. Kids, and, you know, yeah. You, you miss a couple nights of sleep and you feel it, right? Maybe, yes. maybe you can catch up on a weekend or maybe there's a day when you have patients starting later and you can try to get a little sleep. If you are a child who can't breathe, you don't get that reprieve. You don't you because you're developing every single night. And I have a podcast that is going to be uh, at by the time this airs, it'll be out. Um, It'll be releasing on October 5th. So when this airs, it'll have been out on my on the doc podcast with the parents of a patient, six-year-old, who I completely transformed this girl's life by detecting an airway issue. She had mm. no issues with her address. I mean, they, her address were a little, a little bit enlarged, but she went to the ENT before me and didn't diagnose her with anything that the adenoid hypertrophy was severe enough to do any warrant anything surgically. Nasal passageways, a little bit of congestion, nothing major. He put her on Singulair, trying to uh, to get uh, some sort of just shrinking of that tissue. And his research or that he followed, he believed you could have some benefits there from airway perspective. When you hear these parents' story, dad is actually a certified registered nurse anesthetist. Dad would mm-hmm. be sitting up with her holding her in the chin tilt position yes. to try oh. to get her to breathe at night. Nightly, they were doing this for this child. They never told me any of this, but on the cone beam, 
I detected some airway issues because she was narrow and constricted. They came to me because she had a protrusive incisor and mom was worried about trauma. Nothing to do with airway. And when I started talking to mom and digging deeper into it, and I saw the lack of tongue space, I saw in my comb beam, the oropharyngeal space was very narrow. And I started, I looked at her allergy shiners, right? I looked at the Denny Morgan lines, the lines under the eyes. Mm -hmm. And as I always say to parents, like, we're, it's okay if some of us have dark circles under our eyes as we're raising the kids, but the kids shouldn't have tired eyes. I started asking mom about her sleep patterns. I started asking mom about her school or behavior or attention span. When you hear mom, I won't spoil it, but when you hear mom and dad talk about what their experience was when I started asking these questions as the orthodontist, and then what happened when I went in and developed her arches, it's, I mean, how, how can you hear a parent talk like this? It's not me. How can you no. hear a parent talk like this and not be moved by it and not say, well, maybe there's something to it, let alone to have the audacity to mock those who are changing a life like this. Like if you don't want to do it because you weren't trained in pediatrics enough, if you don't like the fact that you've got to book more time for these consultations, again, I'm not telling you you have to do it, but your insecurities to project those onto others right. who have found a way to change patients' lives and to mock them for it, uh, it to me- it does such a disservice to our profession. It um, does. Because you know what, Stacey, at the end of the day, it's a lot easier to take a 13-year-old with crowding and send them to get a lot easier for, for the provider. Right, not, right. Send them to get four teeth pulled and throw some brackets on and treat that case with braces or Invisalign and straighten their teeth and call it a day. And the last thing you want to do, because like you said, it's very hard to be self-critical. It's very hard to look at yourself and say, Maybe I could have done that better and then change all your office systems and change how you train your staff and change the way you've done it all these years. It's a lot easier to just say, I, I'm not doing anything wrong. I didn't, I didn't hurt the airway by doing this. And I want to take a moment to touch on that because yes, yes, that's a good point. The American Association of Orthodontists came out with this white paper and they had revised it in March of 2019. And the general sentiment of the white paper was that orthodontists need to defer to their colleagues of uh, their medical colleagues for treatment of and sort of essentially management of obstructive sleep apnea. So the task force essentially was comprised of mainly academicians, but some private practice physicians and orthodontists, but people who are kind of of that academic mindset, right? That early right, treatment right. really isn't necessarily that beneficial. There were people like Matt James McNamara that, that have done a lot in early treatment, but not anyone who's crossed that line to have been bold enough to say, well, airway really plays a big role in, in or orthodontics can play a big role in airway management, right? So it kind of self-selected for people who are a little more skeptical about it. And that's my opinion. I don't know these people in and out, but just looking at the names, looking at where they came from and the literature that they were reviewing, they did a huge lit review. And this has been literally the pillar for anybody the past few years has opposed this approach was to quote this white paper, right? Oh, the white paper, the white paper. So they couldn't identify any formal OSA guidance for orthodontists. Now, mind you, I said OSA. So as you said, right. the whole premise of OSA is flawed for children in it and is. of itself. In but and they itself. were talking about this in terms of obstructive apnea. So what they did instead is they developed rec specific recommendations that they felt would be useful to an orthodontist in practice. Okay. So I will give them credit. They do a really nice job of laying out airway issues in pediatric patients. They actually do cover a lot of the things we've been talking about in terms of the, the role airway can play in the growth and development. They also acknowledge, because it's hard not to, that expansion can change the upper airway physiology, which has the potential to improve obstructive apnea. 
right? Because again, there's tons of literature out there yes, to support yes. the fact that when you expand, you do widen the nasal cavity, you make more room for the tongue and that you have impacts on the airway. Yes. They then amended it to acknowledge in 2019 that sleep disordered breathing could be impacted by interceptive orthodontic treatment. Now, again, that doesn't really get talked about by many people, but they did say that it could be impacted by interceptive treatment. However, their final recommendation was they strongly recommended that the orthodontist perform a clinical risk assessment for OSA and refer at-risk patients to the appropriate physician for definitive diagnosis of OSA. And subsequently, the orthodontist may be involved of the treatment of pediatric OSA. Mm. If, if the treating physician refers the patient back to the orthodontist to address an underlying skeletal discrepancy thought to contribute to the child's OSA. So you're going to doctor. Yeah, you're going to, wanna... yeah. <laughs> so doctor, let's get this straight. Yeah. You're going, it, we went to school. We were trained to do, this is our playground. Craniofacial development is not right. the physicians right. and the physicians don't want it to be their playground. No. All the physicians I've worked with over the years, um, and I've I've developed a really good relationship with the sleep docs in my town and the ENTs in town, and the, they they're like, look, that's you know, we're punting this back to you. I mean, they don't know what to look for. It'd be wonderful if they knew how to screen for craniofacial because man, it would grab a whole population that's not being treated right now Thank too. You. Yes, you yes. know, so they never know, get to our offices completely. Exactly, they never get yeah. to our offices. I would love that collaboration to happen, but it's not happening right yeah. now. And the bottom line is we know how to identify the craniofacial issues. And I don't need a diagnosis of an OSA or sleep-related breathing disorder. I don't need a diagnosis to correct what I know needs to be corrected in a, in, in a malocclusion. I, I don't. Well, why don't we have and, them just define the malocclusion uh, malocclusion while they're at it, right? Yes, while they're at it. Tell treat. us what you like, else you want us to do. Yeah, and can if I, I work need on a, the open bite? Can I do anything about the crowding? Is that okay, those, doc? I mean, those doctors don't want that responsibility either. So it's no. interesting. It was kind of punted to them yeah. because the, the physicians don't want that responsibility. And, and they'll send it right back to us and say, look, you do you, we'll do us. Thank you. And, and we need to play on this playground together and respect each other. But, but again, it's back to etiology. It's back to apples and oranges. And you know what, if you're an orthodontist or a dentist or what have you that, or pediatric dentist, and you don't want to take the time, you don't want to see a certain population or demographic that's okay. It's okay. And 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 we shouldn't be throwing stones that they don't no, want to I, as I long agree. as they refer appropriately and screen yep. and then say, okay, this child is mouth breathing, um, chap lips, shiners. Uh, I'm going to get them to an ENT. And you know what? Uh, I don't feel comfortable seeing this four, five, six, seven, eight-year-old, but Which I know fine. someone in town that does. Yes. Thank you. Let's yep. work together and Look, and maybe I know that it. practice doesn't like treating comprehensive adult cases that want Invisalign. Yes, and so you, in the one that likes to treat younger kids, yes, says, you know, I get a lot of calls for you know fifty year olds with broken down dentition. They're interdisciplinary cases. They don't want braces. They only want Invisalign. And I just I don't do that much of it. So I'm going to send you to my friend who is an orthodontist who does a ton of that. Like where? Why is that not something in our profession? 
Yeah. And it's not a failure that no. you choose to no. specialize your practice the way you want. Not everybody's going to be every great right. treating a, a four-year-old and, and treating a 40-year-old. It's just- Heck, if I could refer out second molar crowns, I would, but you know, right. it's like, it's, right. there's just things in your practice. You're like, not my favorite. And that's yeah. okay. Like, but to, we have to stop the attacks. There's too much literature. There's too much coming out. The physicians are begging for the dental community to be involved. And when yeah. we are fighting within our own dental community like this, it is such a ugly wart on our profession. And the, and the physicians are looking at us like, what's your problem? Hey, get your stuff together. Like, get your I, I heard stuff that from together. physicians all the time. Like, yes. Well, I sent, you know, mom came, they came to me for their adenoids and tonsils. I, I heard this from the ENT all the time. I asked if they had been seeing an orthodontist yet, right? And because I noticed, because the ENTs I worked with now were getting what I was doing, and which we're going to talk about in future episodes. Yes, so but, excited. But the, the, um, they were noticing this. And so they were asking like, hey, has an orthodontist been involved? Yeah, they're just watching them right now. Do you know how many I'm times- I'm watching them be sick. These people would send, <laughs> these ENTs would then say, you've got to go see my buddy, Dr. Luke. Like, yes. you, like- like, and they would call me like, I kind of feel bad. And, and I never wanted to be taking a patient, but they're like, but the, what you said earlier, like, I see there's a problem with this kid. I know you can help them. And so I needed to tell them, like, I think you should get another opinion. And mm -hmm. so the parents would come to me, bring the patient. And I would look at the kid and I'm again, never seen anything critical about the other. They, one of the first things they'd say is after I went through everything with them and explained what we were going to do to develop the arches, like, why were they doing nothing at the other office? And I would just say, Everybody approaches things differently. Yes, All of our training yes. is different. I happen to have a real passion for this. I happen to have done a lot of this. And so I see this and just other people maybe aren't seeing it. And they just kind of have more the traditional approach where you kind of wait and do it a little older. And that's that. Like, I, I'm not going to sit there and indict my colleague um, for not doing it because maybe they don't know about it. Maybe they're not exposed to it. And that let's go to that. Just like not all orthodontists, not all dentists are um, practicing similarly. Right. Same for ENTs, same for sleep physicians. Completely. I mean, they, not all ENTs are super proactive. I mean, finding a ENT that's willing to jump in and work with you. I mean, you're going to have to, you're going to have to do some digging in your community and phone yep. calls and, and finding that ENT to partner with in your, in your community. But I mean, it is, if, if we, <laughs> To sit and watch and not do anything when we know it's only going to get worse and the child is is suffering, it's to me with the knowledge I have, it's like supervised neglect for me. I can't yeah. do that. So I will Agreed. I will go and say, get another. I have had patients get four opinions from ENTs in town until they found mm. the ENT that changed their life. You keep fighting. You're the parent. You're the advocate. You keep going. You as the parent have to find the provider that's listening to you. Mm -hmm. And if you see a glazed look and a sarcasm and um, a flippant <laughs> attitude from an orthodontist, you just grab little Johnny and say, thanks for your time. And you go to somebody else or like we have on ASAP pathway, we have a provider list of orthodontists and that's pediatric great. dentists and, and dentists and people like yourself that you can go to, but it's, it's, to say that we shouldn't be doing anything and just watching and waiting, it is, it's just not an option. It's not an option. And I just think more conversations like this need to happen. And we have to stop this 
arrow throwing at each other. And you know what's interesting? Back to, I'm going to wait. Do I have to wait for an OSA diagnosis or yeah. lack thereof before yeah. I address a malocclusion? No. Right. right. Um, and Audrey Yoon and Stanford's studies that have just been released. Yeah. You know what? There, It was during COVID. Um, there were parents that were not wanting to have surgical intervention at the moment. They weren't comfortable with it. Yep. So they had a population um, of kids that had lymphoid tissue enlargement. Was that, that the 2022 in sleep? Yeah. yeah. And they chose, they yeah. chose to have orthodontic intervention yep. anyway, like yep. it needs to be done anyway. So let's go ahead and do it first yep. because again, it needs to be done anyway. So let's do it now. And, you know, to find the shrinkage of the adenoids by almost 40%, you know, th there's nothing wrong with getting started and working. Absolutely. To that point, I, I had many ENTs I worked with that, like the patient I was saying, whose parents are on the podcast, they saw a little adenoid enlargement, but they were like, it, it's not for six. It's not that bad. It doesn't warrant surgery. Right. right. So like, go ahead and do your thing. And that's where I learned. And as I did this more and more, I was able to recognize which cases needed to go to the ENT and which didn't. And this was a case where I would say to the parents, She'd already been to the ENT, but let's say this patient I was talking about before with mild, mild to moderately enlarged adenoids, say she hadn't been in the ENT. A lot of those cases, I would do exactly what you just said. I would go in and develop the arches and help grow the arches when they were younger and tell the parents, if we do this and we still don't see resolution in the adenoid size, uh, the airway, the breathing, then we're going to go to the ENT because by that point, I didn't do that initially. Initially, I would kind of err on the side of like anything that looked big on adenoids, I would send. And then the ENTs, as we got talking about this, would say like, well, I, I, would, I would learn from them. I'd say, now, did you, you I noticed you didn't, you're not treating these patients or doing anything intervening in any way, medically or surgically. Do you just want me to go ahead and do my thing first and then see how they respond? And they were like, absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. When you, you know, by now, Mike, we know you, we work with you, you know, what's extreme and, and really, you know what I'm going to do surgery on and you know what I'm not in that. And if you're ever, they would say, if you're ever confused, obviously send them, but it's another visit for the patients, for the busy yep. ENTs. Like they don't, it, it'd be like sending a patient to the oral surgeon because their wisdom teeth are like starting to develop to be like, Oh, do you want to look at these for surgery? You know, as a dentist, whether or not that's something that needs to be referred to the surgeon at that point or not. Right. Once you understand right. the lymphoid tissue, you it's the same thing. You start to understand what the surgeon needs to see and what they don't. And so on those cases, I would say, let's just go ahead and do our thing as you're talking about with Audrey and, and her colleagues in their Stanford study and see how they respond. And the yes. when I saw that study, I was like, yes, yes. And yes, because I saw that happen all. Yes. The and, time. and let's, let's address evidence-based dentistry, the, the definition yes. of evidence-based yep. dentistry. It is not just literature. Literature is Correct. wonderful. We should be pursuing it. We should be doing these studies. But let's get, <laughs> if we're having more conversations around the dental table, okay, a cup of coffee, talking to our colleagues instead of hiding in our practices behind a computer and attacking each other, right? if we see each other face-to-face -face or and, and start showing the patterns that we are seeing within our practices yep. that drive the literature, yep. let's not forget that. We are- doctors, we are helping people. You can't throw out what thousands of healthcare professionals are seeing happening in their practice because a certain study said maybe or maybe not. And Completely. you know, let's even look at how that study was done. And thank you. And and we I mean, we we can't we I mean we just there's just so much to learn on this topic. 
And you can't and really design a randomized control trial for you this. You really I mean, can't. How would yeah. you do it? And they know that. The people they who do. do they, they know it. They know you can't. I mean, retrospective and and looking at things retrospectively, sure, you can you can make some assessments on which we'll talk more about next time about whether airway you know, expansion, how it can affect the airway. So you can do some of that because you can look at where they started and where they finished and then take a, a large sample of patients and see if you can have a comparable result and outcome. But you can't take one patient and treat them early and take the same patient and treat them that has the same parameters. You know, you can't standardize that. No two patients are exactly the same. No That's two, it's so not like true. you're giving them a medicine that that medication is, is titrated to the, you know, to the microgram of, of what the dosage is. You, you can't titrate what, how the force that you put on every single tooth and on the bone of two separate patients who no never present with the same malocclusion, right? You can control, right. Who present with the same amount of say their blood sugar level, right? You can take a parameter like, okay, you all are within a, a range of 10 of, of your, of your fasting glucose level. You can't take, there's no standards that exist. Yeah. Like it's that. so hard to quantify this you can't quantify and, it. and they know it's that so hard and they, and they do. That. And, and they do like, there are no data on it. Well, yes, there are. Uh, there's tons of research going, like you said, back to the early 1900s showing that you can go in early and help be preventative with your approach to treatment. There are tons of data that show that, and tons of literature out there to prove that you can go in and expand, uh, arches and help them grow and help improve airway patency, right? So we know all those things happen. Now, extraction, one thing I want to mention quickly about that. So the AO white paper also looked at whether or not extraction had a negative impact on airway. Yes, yes. This is where it becomes lies, damn lies and statistics, right? Yes, because yes. Because what they did is <laughs> it depends, as you said, defining your variables and what you're looking for is what's so important. So they compared extraction and non-extraction patients in the permanent dentition to see if you took teeth out on this patient with a similar amount of crowding to pa patient A, similar amount of crowding to patient B, and you didn't take teeth out on patient B, did the patient and patient, did patients A and B have different airway outcomes, right? That totally misses the yes. point of yes. whether if you took patients A and B or A or B and started them when they were six or five or whatever you're going to do and made room for their teeth and their arches, right? So that made the broaden their arches, made room for their teeth so that they didn't have the crowding. Would those patients have different airways at that point? So the point is, is I'm not saying that just literally the act of pulling teeth ruins right. airways. Right. And there was just a, just recently on one of our social media ortho groups, they were bashing somewhat people who think airway can have a, an impact and, uh, and saying, you know, oh yeah, you know, yeah, don't ever extract teeth. You're going to ruin every airway. So, but with the AO white paper gave them sort of the ammunition because they basically, they, they essentially said that extractions don't have a negative impact on airway, but they didn't acknowledge that if you're not normalizing the, on either patient, you're likely not normalizing the skeletal relationships. So right, it's the right. opportunity to help them grow and help the craniofacial growth and development. Now they've been sicker. They've been mouth breathing. The sleep disorder breathing has existed. And if you pull teeth on one and pull, don't pull teeth on another, are you all of a sudden going to get this miraculously different result? Obviously, on some you are, and some you aren't, and, and some and you some, aren't. You know, and that's going to be, and some going to have no change. The point is, is you need to say, what if we treated this kid proactively in, say, yes. the early mixed dentition when they were developing, and help them grow and help make room for the teeth, and now they don't need extraction. So the whole extracting teeth, because I'm telling you right now, the data are also very clear. That and it's there's another study just came out recently, I think it was Progress in Orthodontics, that adults with OSA 
have a much higher incidence or uh, have a much higher incidence of having a high vaulted narrow palate. Yes. Yes. So we know that's the case. So <laughs> yes. if we know that a high vaulted narrow palate is much more common in patients who have obstructive sleep apnea as adults, and we know we can help mitigate that when they're young with interceptive orthodontic treatment, what in the world are we doing? Exactly. And how, and how are we defending not doing anything? All of the, look, if I presented all of my adult sleep apneic patients and the train wreck occlusion, malocclusions mm. they have, uh, and vaulted palates, I mean, mm -hmm. it's insane. I mean, I'm referring for MSE and MMA and all of these are craniofacial things that potentially could have been helped when they were kids. Because they and, treated the symptom. It's not the extracting the teeth. Right. It's, it's the because underlying. extracting the teeth treated the symptom, which was the right. crowding. It didn't address Treat the Treat the etiology. And that's, and that's the thing that's missing. <laughs> that's the missing piece, friend, is we are apples and oranges. What is your diagnosis? Sit everyone around a table with the same case and let's see what everyone's treatment plans would be. Well, doctor, what's your diagnosis? What are you, you treating? Mm -hmm. And then we can say, well, the reason your treatment plan's different than mine is my diagnosis is different than yours. Exactly. So, so well said. And I think too, not only behavior management, but if we can get more studies of uh, more academics of sleep medicine and dental sleep medicine in the dental schools. And I know some on the West Coast, I think, I know uh, there are some ortho programs that I know Stanford is. They're including the study of dental sleep medicine and sleep medicine within the orthodontic program. Wow, that's great. Then your diagnosis doctor is going to be different than the average orthodontist diagnosis. When you know more, you do yes. different things. Yes. So I think if you're coming at it, I just look at white things. I just look at teeth. The teeth are just the bystander. They're getting yes. shoved all over the place. Yes. They're not they're not the etiology. So the can we thing. all start being more open to, is there more for us to learn as oral healthcare providers that we're missing, that we need to be more open to, to the colleagues that do understand sleep fragmentation and the importance of, of a good night's sleep and proper breathing? Yeah. And exactly on that note, the article I wrote in June in Orthotown talks about that paradigm shift that needs to occur to stopping from my profession so that we need to stop looking at the teeth and centering our treatment plans around the teeth. Yes. The teeth are the symptom. The etiology is the narrowness, the transverse discrepancy, right? And then when you start looking at a patient like that and having those discussions, which is such a great idea, let's get to sit around a table and start talking about why this patient is like that. Instead of sadly, as I said, in the orthodontic residencies, you kind of ignore Anything going on etiologically when that ch child is in the, the mixed dentition, primary and mixed dentition, and just worry about cleaning up the symptom when they're an adolescent, that's how they're trained. So if you're not getting the training as you're talking about, thankfully, Stanford and some other residencies sound like they're doing. Yeah. I can see why so many orthodontists come out and are like, yes. this is just, this, this is quackery because the literature you read says that you don't treat any cases interceptively or very few. If you do, it's a posterior crossbite that you just put an expander in on because not, there's not much dispute over fixing a, a posterior crossbite when the child is younger. So we're talking, I mean, you know how many orthodontists and how much orthodontic literature has come out to say there is no reason to ever treat a patient without a posterior crossbite 
and deceptively. I mean, stop and think. You talk about dogmatic. I mean, yeah. wait, so so if a posterior crossbite is there, that means the maxilla clearly is narrow. Yes. And the mandible probably isn't as narrow, right? Or else it wouldn't have a crossbite. Ever stop and think about the fact that maybe the mandibular arch is even more narrow in the patient without the posterior crossbite? Well, and Sean Carlson had some beautiful, uh, yeah, uh, beautiful study. Yeah, he's great. Just on the su- superior convergence. And, and when I look at, Okay, you're looking at the white things, Doc. I'm looking at the bone. Okay. Mm-hmm. And you can have a skeletal crossbite, posterior crossbite, when you're looking at Absolutely. the Waller Ridge and you're looking at yep. so we have to look beyond the teeth. And what you're saying, skeletal, the, the you have a yes. skeletal, a bone crossbite, but bone not a tooth crossbite. crossbite not of a dental tooth crossbite. Exactly. Completely. Yes. Because yeah. of dental compensation. So again, what are you looking at and what am I looking at yep. might be two different diagnoses. And most, so we honestly, quit- most orthodontic residents aren't even being taught to look at it in that light. Mm. Honestly, Stacey, they're not. They're looking at these kids younger. They're seeing there's no crossbite. I wasn't. They're seeing right. there's no crossbite. They're not really, they're not even taking comeums. In most, in a lot of residencies, they're still taking 2D imaging and only taking 3D if they see something in 2D, like impacted canines or impacted tooth. They're <laughs> not even crazy to me. That, you know, if you were to take a coronal slice on these patients and just track it back from front yes. to back and look at the bone and the teeth. Look at that long axis of those first and, molars. I mean, you can see yes. so much and it's like, and but no, you can't do anything with that. So it, it's- it takes you know people what's like you and funny? I to keep fighting this fight. And it I is. Know we, and, I, and I know we both are going to keep fighting this fight. We are. We are. And we're going to keep educating. And it's real. You know what's going to take? It's going to take the parents educating themselves and demanding the care they deserve for their kids. Yep. This is not rocket science. No. I no. can show a comb beam to a mom in five minutes and she's like, duh. I, like, I, duh. The, the, the patient <laughs> on that podcast I keep referencing, mom. Talk, mom is like so passionate about this. And she's told me, she's like, I'll go out with you on the road. Like, she's so sweet. And at the end of it, we, we cut filming and, um, uh, I almost wish she had said it on there. Cause it was so funny. And, and at the end, we were talking about exactly what you're saying. Like, I, you know, doctors aren't doing this, but patients and parents want it and they can see it once they've been educated and they understand it. And they know that you're right, that this is going on with their kid and they want this treatment. And they're so happy that they did it, which mom expresses. And then after we cut, she's like, what the heck is wrong with all these doctors? <laughs> That's what they say to me. They're like, I don't understand. You're showing me and I understand it. And um, I think it's just, it's a mindset, Mike. It's a, there's fear involved. There's yeah. insecurities involved and uh, not enough conversation. Yeah. And like you and I have said, look, there's plenty of room at the table because I believe that in the next few years, it's going to shake out that, there is something to what we've been doing. And, yeah. and the reason uh, we see it and we, All I know time. we'll go into more of that next time, just like how the things we are doing and what we are seeing and um, different techniques involved. And, but friend, I mean, we just have to keep respectfully having conversations yeah. and I no more want to be called a quack for helping a family who gives me a hug. And they're like, I got my kiddo. I mean, this is my, my kids their best self. A lot of times in yeah, tears. my kid is their best self. Like mm-hmm. nobody does better research than a worried mother. So if you're Great out point. there calling other professionals doing this, my wife quacks, would agree I mean, on that. What? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I'm like, what are you guys doing? Quit slinging mud, and let's sit down. And there's a chair for you at the table too. Let's just have some conversations. And I think people would be less disrespectful if we actually 
talked and looked at each other as human beings and healthcare professionals and look at your colleagues and say, is there a chance that this doctor is doing this because they want to help that child, Mm. you know, and uh, give each other grace and the benefit of the doubt that we actually want to help that child. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and look at yourself. And be, yeah. be be big enough to be self-critical. You know, I I was trained. I wasn't trained to do it this way. Uh, I had amazing training at UConn in biomechanics. And I mean, but like I said, it, I'm not faulting anyone. The nature of the programs are we didn't treat young kids. I got out and realized almost everybody coming to me was like seven with crowding and narrow arches. And I'm going, I, I don't feel good about pulling teeth on these cases because, again, the teeth aren't the problem. And I started doing upper and lower turnkey expanders, and we'll get into more to this next time. But the point is, is I've done it every different way. And each time I changed from how I was trained in my program to starting to be more aggressive on interceptive treatment was hard, right? Yeah, it's philosophically yeah. hard. I had to be hard on myself, be like, well, geez, the first cases I was starting the first few months, I wasn't doing this. And and then as you, you then, and I evolved there into the, the way that I had evolved to do the archwire expansion, I had to be critical of myself all over again and say, well, I've just been doing this for six years this way. And that change is hard and it's, it's humbling. And you have to go to your team and be like, okay, I know we've been doing it this way, but I'm going to change the way we're doing it. And, and so all those things are little intangibles that I don't think get talked about enough. I think we're, we're very prideful, right. As, as we, as we are as orthodontists, I I know, and, and I'm Dennis and my family, I mean, Dennis are, we're very particular, we're intelligent. We're, yeah. we're 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 driven. We're motivated. We're thinkers. We're creative. We have a lot of these things going on. And when someone challenge, we also fall into our patterns. Yes. And yeah. when someone challenges those patterns, when it's working, because like I said, you're not killing people directly when you're extracting teeth, right? It's not like you pull teeth and the patient's dying. When you're not having a negative outcome right away, it's really hard to motivate change because you can look mm-hmm. at that and be like, their teeth, they're class one. Their teeth, they got a nice smile. Their teeth look good. I didn't do anything wrong. And it's really hard to, especially people have been practicing for a while. And residents are always way more open when I talk about this than practitioners have been practicing for 30 years, because it's really hard to look at what you've done the past 30 years and go, man, I've messed some people up. Yikes. Instead of saying, hey, look, practice is called practice for a reason. That's right. right? You know better, you do better. And as you know better, I would never fault somebody and say, you should have been doing this 20 years ago. But I do fault somebody for saying, you shouldn't do this today. Like, Amen to that. You know better, you do better. And it's being humble enough. And we have to, as healthcare practitioners, we have to check our egos at the door for the sake of our patients. Without a doubt. And we have to be able to say, how I practice today isn't how I practiced 20 years ago when I got out of dental school. And thank God. And and that's a a good thing. Yeah. That's a good thing, guys. That's a good thing. So I'm looking forward to our next- um, conversation. And like great. I said, we might have to have like a 10 parter. I don't know, I know when this gonna, is going to end. <laughs> maybe monthlies. We'll just, we'll just <laughs> yeah, throw exactly. monthlies in It sounds good to me. <laughs> uh, that's great. No, it's been so much fun. I appreciate uh, you having me on yours and being on mine. And uh, it's been great. And I'm really looking forward to, to next Same. time. We'll, we'll dive into some of how we do this. Yeah. Uh, get a little more, more, more granular on that side of things. Yeah. Great conversations, friend. This is awesome. good. Thanks. Same Mike. here. Thanks so much, Daisy. All right. Bye. Bye. Thank you for watching this episode of the Doc Podcast. Be sure to visit theorthocoach.com to get access to CE courses or schedule a private one-on-one coaching session with me. And remember to join the Doc community on Locals for more great content designed to help you succeed both personally and professionally. Just go to Locals and search for the Doc community.
You can also find Doc on Instagram at at the ortho coach. And remember, you have the power to do amazing things. Thank you.